the first century world was a bleak place. I'm, I'm taking a lot of this introduction from, from one of the commentaries. It just it set the scene so well. Um, a writer called Leon Morris, and he talks about the first century world being a really bleak place. Uh, there was a high infant and child mortality rate, uh, so high that um, you know that, that it just it dropped the average life expectancy to about thirty-five years. That's not to say that that people didn't get over thirty-five, and a lot of people would have lived to thirty-five, forty-five. But it was the high infant death rate and child death rate brought the average life expectancy way, way down. Um, and that, you know, the, the average of it. Um, life was really hard for many. Uh, a huge number of people were, were slaves in the Roman Empire. Sickness and death was just part of life. Think about how life was without um, ordinary uh, what we have as ordinary antibiotics and a lot of things that we take for granted. Um, you know, the, the Sadducees came to Jesus with a question about, you know, um, if a man dies and his wife remarries and then that husband dies and then the wife remarries again and remarries again and, and she's married seven times and in, in the, uh, if there's a resurrection, whose wife uh, will she be? They're trying to poke fun at the resurrection because they didn't believe in the resurrection. But the scene that they portray isn't an unlikely scene. Somebody being married multiple times because, you know, even right up to the, the 16, 17, 1800s, life expectancy was short. And, and a man could be married three or four times because his wife his wife just had passed away. Um, so uh, that was the world... Uh, uh, that of the first century and up until more recent times, if it's such medication, um, but it was a world where the burden of sin and human misery was intensely realised. One writer says, uh, and all the various religious um, options didn't give people much hope. In the Greek world, there was Stoicism, which really said, "Suck it up, yeah, life's tough. Suck it up," and then there was. Another one, the other big main option was what was called the Epicurean uh, belief, and it was suck it in, you know. <laughs> There's pleasure, suck it in, enjoy life as much as you can, make the most of it, for it's tough. Uh, so get all the joy you can, and as much in as squeezed into as little time as you can, because the gods aren't interested, and you've got to make of it what you can. Um, and there's evidence, Leon Morris says, of widespread dissatisfaction with life, but nobody had a good solution. And then crashing into this world of pain and death and sorrow and illness uh, and dissatisfaction comes Christianity. And uh, with a, a note of real and deep joy, Leon Morris says, a few things are as important for an understanding of Christianity as the recognition that the note of joy runs through the New Testament. A radiant optimism which began with the coming of Christ and fills the pages of the New Testament from the four Gospels to the revelation of St. John. A radiant optimism comes bursting into the first century world and there's 24 different words that are used for joy in the New Testament. Um, and they're used a total of 326 times. 
Uh, and you know, you, you get Paul in Philippians. He's in prison and he writes, Rejoice. I will say it again, rejoice. Uh, let your joy be evident to all. You know, so joy is not a minor part of New Testament Christianity. And it's against a backdrop of persecution and family breakup because of Christianity, a sense of betrayal of, of Judaism, you know, and people turning to Christ, and yet being filled with deep, deep joy. I'm reading a, a book at the minute uh, called Surprised by Oxford, or maybe Surprised at Oxford. The, the title is a sort of a copycat of a book by C.S. Lewis, Surprised by Joy. But it's about an atheist who became a Christian uh, at Oxford. And I've just come to the point where she's just become a Christian. And she's, she's talking about the, 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 the lightness, the joy, the wonder uh, of how, you know, of, of coming to Christ and this new experience. And she talks about, you know, just life seeming so much richer and greater. Um, and yet her fra- family don't particularly want to know her, her friends. Uh, don't particularly want to know her. Her the, the, some of the professors at the college think she's just oh you're just going through a phase, um, but she's filled with joy, and it marked out these Christians in the ancient world, and it's to mark out Christians in our world, and Peter expected it to so mark out Christians that they would be asked to give a reason for the hope that they had. Um, so. Here we are on this last night before the crucifixion and Jesus is speaking to his disciples about joy. That's just incredible in itself. He's about to face the pains of hell, the wrath of his father, physical pain uh, like nothing else, spiritual pain uh, that we can't imagine and he speaks about joy. And the joy that the disciples are going to have. Uh, but he's realistic. As well as speaking about joy, he speaks about grief. It's not some pie in the sky idealism that will be shattered when they watch him die. In fact, he's preparing them for the shocking reality of his crucifixion. And he prepares them by giving them two things. A time frame and a promise. A time frame that's particularly applicable to the apostles. But this is especially for them. The first hearers of this are the apostles, and it applies to them, but there are some things that we can take and apply to us. In a wider sense, it also applies to us. And the promise that he makes to the apostles, the time frame is particularly about them, but the promise includes us too. And as we come to communion, we want to be reminded of the time frame and the promise. Often at preparation services we come to communion we're, we're searching our hearts for things that are there that shouldn't be there. I think this evening I want us to search our hearts for something that isn't there that should be there. Um, this note of joy and to see uh, that we have it because all sorts of things can quash it. Um, so we sum up this chapter by by saying long term sorry short term grief long term joy there's the time frame short term long term and there's the promise joy joy so first of all short term grief jesus and the disciples 
and it's helpful to, to sort of try and picture this in our minds because it makes sense of the the verses as we read them. At this stage, they're, they're probably walking uh, either through Jerusalem past the temple courts where uh, Jesus has seen the, the great imagery of the, the, the vines that were traced on the, the temple walls. Um, that's, that's perhaps where that, and he says, I am the vine. Or maybe they're out through Jerusalem and they're going up the hillside through the vineyards on the side of the Mount of Olives to the Garden of Gethsemane. Uh, but they're, 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 so they're either wending their way through the narrow streets of Jerusalem or they're going up a hillside and they're go- he's not sitting in a room talking to them at this stage. So they're in little clumps. And Jesus has just said to them um, in verse 16, In a little while you will see me no more and then after a little while you will see me. And then in verse 17 you get this sense of this bitty conversation the disciples said to one another, what does he mean by saying in a little while you'll see me no more and after a little while you'll see me and because I'm going to the Father. They kept asking, what does he mean by a little while? We don't understand. I have this image in my mind of these clumps, little groups of three and four walking along. And What do you think he means by a little while? And another, one, another group says, well, what does he mean by I'm going to the Father? And we don't understand this. Do you understand it? And the other, you know, they, they, some of them speed up and catch up with the others and no, we don't get it either. What's he on? And then Jesus hears this sort of hubbub of questioning. And he says to them, um, verse 18, Are you asking one another what I meant when I said, you know, imagine him leading the way and he over Are you asking one another what I meant when I said? Um, and uh, you can see Jesus' tender care coming out here. They're confused. He's about to be betrayed. But he's concerned to prepare them for what lies ahead. And so he explains. And he says, I tell you the truth. He says, I want you to get this. Or some Bible versions, truly, truly. He says, he's spoken. In a, of, in a little while you will see me no more. And then after a little while you will see me. Two little whiles. There's a little while, no more. Another little while, you'll see me. Then he says in verse 20, he doesn't, you notice he doesn't actually answer the question. He says in verse 20, I tell you the truth, you will weep and mourn while the world rejoices. You will grieve, but your grief will turn to joy. That's his answer. There will be grief followed by joy. And you can see the parallels. There will be a little while where you'll not see me and you'll have grief. And then after another little while, you will see me and you'll have joy. Be a little while of grief followed after another little while of joy. What are these little whiles? Well, different commentators have different options. Um, you don't, to me, it's fairly clear that he's talking about the death, his death and resurrection. That fits it best. Um, but some writers um, think that it's the death, his death, and then his second coming. But that doesn't seem to me like a little while. That seems to me like a fairly big while. Um, and then he talks then after that about going to the Father. So that doesn't seem to fit um, as well as death and resurrection. And some other writers think that it's his death and then they will see more and they will see better 
and they will see more clearly at the coming of the Holy Spirit who will be given in a little while. Well, they will see better when the Holy Spirit comes. But I don't think that's what's being spoken of uh, here. Uh, And the reason I tell you those is if you were reading perhaps J.C. Ryle, um, uh, you know, some of you have J.C. Ryle, he goes for the option that it's the death and the, the return of Christ at the end of time. And um, I, I don't think that I don't I don't think that's what it's specifically getting at. Uh, Jesus is being a little cryptic, and arguments can be made either way. But I think it's most likely his death and resurrection, because they will weep while the world rejoices. That fits crucifixion time, and the the little while doesn't seem to be a big enough gap between the crucifixion and the second coming. And then he says. Now is your time of grief, but I will see you again and you will rejoice and no one will take away your joy. That doesn't seem to fit with with Pentecost. So his death and resurrection. Uh, Jesus is preparing them for the next 72 hours. Uh, There's going to be his arrest, grief. There's going to be the flogging and the beating and they'll grieve as they see that happening. Uh, Even before there'll be the, the trial amongst the Jews. And the, the lies. I mean, we were grieved at the lies being told in the whole abortion referendum campaign. How much more would the disciples have been grieved at hearing the lies being told about their master and their saviour? Um, then they would hear the crowd baying for his blood. Their dear friend and the crowd is shouting, crucify him, crucify him. Now is the time of your grief, Jesus says. You will weep and lament. Those are, those are words of deep Deeps are wailing. This is funeral grief. They will see him crucified. They will see his body being taken down lifeless. They will see it being put into a tomb. Now is the time of your grief. And the world will rejoice. The Jewish leaders will rejoice. Pilate will be relieved that that he's diffused the mob and that he's not going to be reported to Rome for another stupid mistake because Pilate has made several stupid mistakes. And Rome wasn't likely to be happy with him, particularly if he set off a, an explosion in Judea, a most volatile region. And the crowds are delighted. They've got their freedom fighter Barabbas released. The despair of Friday. The gloom of Saturday. You know, just sitting there, waiting throughout that day. What? What has happened? Uh, what just happened there? Numb with shock. Devastated. Jesus says you will grieve. Then comes sunrise on that Lord's Day morning. And you're shaking yourself as you wake. And is it still? Did that really happen? Is Jesus really gone? The cock crows as sun rises. wonder what Peter did that cock crowing. Did you sit and weep? Did I really betray him or deny him? And then there's a battering at the door. And it's the woman. They say, the tomb's empty. We saw angels. He's risen. Peter, he pulls on him, wraps a robe round him and he and John run and they run to the tomb and the stone is rolled back and the tomb is empty and the grave clothes are there and the, there's the very cloth that was was on his over his face. It's it's folded up neatly. What happened? 
They go back puzzled and perplexed. And then comes to the house Mary of Magdala. And she says, I saw him, I saw the Lord. He spoke to me and he said, you're to go ahead of him to Galilee and there he'll meet you. And, you know, just Now your joy has come. Now is the time of grief, but joy will come. Puzzlement that was there, but your grief will turn to joy. And with wonderful gentleness, before it all happens, Jesus tells them, you've got short-term grief coming your way but it's grief with a purpose it's grief like grief that a a mother has when she's giving birth grief's not the end of the story it's painful it's raw it's it's hard and the the pregnant mother is moaning or perhaps crying out as loud as she can with all the force that she can muster But there's a happy ending. And Jesus wants him to know that the grief will be intense. But it will be short. And it will result in joy. And this joy is certain and will be permanent. Look at verse 22. Now is the time of your grief. But I will see you again. And you will rejoice. And no one will take away your joy. Now that's the time frame particularly for the disciples, Jesus' death and resurrection. But what does this say to us? There's three things that it says to us. First of all, grief isn't the final story. Grief isn't the final story. Disappointment isn't the end of the sentence. Uh, While this is aimed at the apostles primarily, And it's about the time between the crucifixion and the resurrection. The time between the crucifixion and the resurrection is like a little miniature portrait of a bigger picture of the time between Jesus' first coming and his second coming. We will have grief. We will have sorrow. It's a smaller picture of a bigger pattern. And this is true for us in a sense. For a A little while we don't see him, but in a little while we will see him. Now we have a grief, but that's not the end of the story. There's more in the sentence. That's that's a comma in our sentence, but there's the sentence is yet to be finished. We will grieve and weep and mourn, for we live in a broken world with broken bodies amongst sinful people, and the world rejoices, doesn't it? Because it thinks that Christ is gone and defeated and absent uh, or non-existent. That he's fled with his tail between his legs. And these things grieve us. And they confuse us. And Christ in his tenderness says, Grief's not the end. We have a saviour who understands. And he takes time to point these disciples ahead to his resurrection. But we can also... Take this and look ahead to our resurrection when he returns. Remember, grief isn't the end of the story. And that's part of the significance of the Lord's Supper. It's pointing us ahead to Christ's return. We do this until he comes. So grief isn't the final story. Secondly, joy is a present reality. Joy is a present reality. And we have to take this from these words. 
Jesus says to the disciples that after their short, temporary, intense grief, joy will come and will not go. Verse 22. So with you. Now is the time of your grief, but I will see you again and you will rejoice and no one will take away your joy. We'll think more about the joy in a moment, but this joy for the disciples is going to be a permanent, present reality after the resurrection. And we live after the resurrection. So for us, joy is a present reality. The resurrection is going to be groundbreaking for the disciples. It's going to be a game changer, a rule breaker. It'll bring such a level of joy that even the griefs and hardships. And Jesus has told them, you will be persecuted. They'll hunt you down. They'll throw you out of the synagogue. They'll kill you and think they're doing God a favor. They're going to experience grief and sorrow. But he says, you're going to have a joy that no one can take away from you. Something that happens in the resurrection of Jesus Christ that is so earth-shattering that will mean that even these hard events won't be able to rob them of that joy. They'll have a death-defying joy. They'll have a pleasure, a a pressure-resistant joy. They'll have a persecution-proof joy. They'll have a sickness-superseding joy. How's that? It's because the resurrection will show them that Christ is undefeatable, that the greatest sadness in the world is no match for the power of Christ. What a game changer the resurrection was. Just to go in that moment from utter despair, getting up that morning, and there being a knock at the door, and you go down, what is it? The tomb's empty. He's alive. What? You're mad. They run to the tomb. Then they see him that evening. It's true, it's true. And then the chief priest says, oh, if you keep talking about Jesus, we'll put you to death. Good job. Well, we'll see how that works out. Because our Jesus, he, he can raise the dead. That's not such a big threat after. It's a game changer. Um, you can imagine what it would have been like to have been in that upstairs room when Jesus walked in. And that joy is ours. And I I fear that we struggle to grasp, well certainly I do, to grasp and to maintain resurrection joy. It's easy to lose sight of. The New Testament writers were always going on about the resurrection. And I think that's something that I don't do enough of. Um, I want to do more of. They said about Charles Spurgeon that he averaged mentioning the resurrection twice in every sermon. Um, You know, I don't think I do that. Um, He always said it before his people. On and on about the resurrection. Um, Luke summarizes the preaching style of the apostles. With great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. He's risen from the dead. It's not just about defeating death either. This resurrection joy is the joy that comes from knowing all this is true. That we're adopted into God's family. That we have our lives of meaning and significance. That we have something that can never be taken away from us. That 
although our bodies might be falling apart and things going wrong, we have the anticipation of a new body and a new world and a new life. We look at all the regrets we have, the things that we didn't get a chance to do that we would like to do, but we have all of eternity ahead of us. Resurrection, life and joy. None of what this world offers ultimately matters. You're part of something bigger and better. One writer uh, says, You've been raised with Christ, says Paul. You can't just stick it in your back pocket and get back to business as usual. Put your heart and mind to work. Think like a risen person. Think like a risen person. The resurrection of Jesus is the guarantee and demonstration of what is to come for those who trust in him. Someone once said it was like watching slow motion footage of a dam bursting. Jesus has risen from the the, the, the dam has started to burst. And we're we're the water behind the reservoir. And because Christ has burst the wall of the dam, we are all bursting through with him. Death can't hold us. The wall, once it starts to go, can't hold the water back. For the Christian death is not the end, it's a new beginning. It's a condition for the resurrection. And this writer Sam Albury says, Grey hairs are therefore not a threat, but a promise. I like that. You know, resurrection joy. Resurrection joy is a present reality. Uh, that uh, No hairs. <laughs> I don't know, are they a bigger promise, a better promise? (laughs) Um, Resurrection joy should be a reality that marks our lives. Do we need to be recalled to that this evening? Then third thing that we see here is griefs are transformed to joys. Look what Jesus actually says in verse 20. You will grieve, but your grief will turn to joy. He doesn't say your grief will be replaced by joy. The psalmist said, weeping lasts for a night, but joy comes in the morning. But Jesus says more than that, that grief turns to joy. Don Carson writes, the very thing that generates their grief also generates their joy. The cross was going to bring intense grief and pain to the disciples. Yet the very same cross would bring a joy that could never be matched. And that's seen in Jesus' illustration, isn't it? The the birth pains of of a woman in labor. The very thing that's bringing her intense grief and pain is also the very thing that's bringing her great joy. Her grief is turned into joy. We have a promise of griefs being transformed into joys. part of the promise that God works all things for our good is part of this pattern. All things our past, our problems whether it's a struggle with depression or addiction, our sinful past the experiences that we went through and we think I wish I had come to Christ sooner God uses them above and beyond what we can think watch him trust him your grief will be turned to joy. See how he uses it. And at communion time, he gives us a promise 
that the thing of grief is the thing of joy. As we come to a place where we're reminded that Christ's body was broken and his blood was shed. And that moment of grief is also what brought Christ great joy. Because it was through his death that he would have many brothers and sisters to take into glory who for the joy set before him endured the cross and scorned its shame. And because of his death for our sins, we have joy. And at communion we're reminded that our God is a God who turns grief into joy. Short-term grief, we have present joy. And then secondly, and um, more briefly, long-term joy. We've already said much of this, but I want us just to see the long-term nature of the joy. The resurrection brings an imperishable joy. That marked out the early Christians. They marked them out as very different in century one. They, They had a joy that didn't diminish. They were thrown to lions. They were burned alive. And they wouldn't stop singing. And in, in, in Reformation times, they would actually tear the tongues out of Christians before they burned them at the stake at times because these wretched people wouldn't stop singing. They were so filled with joy. One of the covenanters on the scaffold about to be hung is saying, Farewell, family. Farewell, friends. Welcome, angels. Welcome, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He's just Filled with delight. A joy that couldn't be taken away. We see here three things that Jesus says about it. Fullness of joy. Fullness of joy. No one will take away your joy. A joy that's unstoppable, irremovable, permanent. It changes things. It should colour everything about our lives. It doesn't mean that we're always happy. But it means that we have always a reason for joy that can supersede our sorrow. No one can take it away because they can't take away Jesus. No one can take away our joy. No circumstance can take it away because they can't take us out of Jesus. They can't take away his victory. They can't take away his promise that he'll never leave us or forsake us. They can't take away his promise that he'll work everything for good. They can't take away his promise that although we are vessels of clay that he has put treasure in these earthen vessels the Lord's Supper is a reminder that Christ is with his people not just a reminder he's actually present especially at the Lord's table to bless his people long term joy because there's a fullness to it a fullness that permeates into everything even our struggles It seeps in and it starts to colour them. Weeping lasts for a night, but joy comes in the morning. And there's also a fullness of understanding. Jesus says, verse 23, In that day you will no longer ask me anything. In that day, that day of resurrection joy that can never be taken away, the disciples will no longer ask Jesus anything. The word that's used for ask here means a query, a question. Um... Explain this to me. They've been asking all sorts of questions. They don't get it. But Jesus says once the resurrection happens, things will start to become clear about the Father 
about the Holy Spirit, about their eternal destiny, about the certainty of it all. It doesn't mean we've got all the answers, but living on this side of the resurrection, boy, we have. It's like living in high definition, full colour, compared to the old, you know, dial television where it's all snowy and you just about saw a picture through the, the haze. We live on the side of full definition, our full colour, high definition. We see God in a whole new way. Father, Son and Holy Spirit. We see the extents of his love and mercy. We see that we've been adopted. One writer talks about how the epistles, the letters, are so much clearer than even what Jesus says in the gospel. There's a, a hiddenness and a, a, a puzzle to what Jesus says. But after the resurrection... It all starts to fit into place. Ah, we get it now, the apostles say. And we've got a much richer understanding that fills us with joy as we read and take in Christ's teaching after the resurrection. If you find that, not just in the scripture, but in our own lives, coming to Christ has meant that life starts to make sense. And that gives us a peace and a joy and fullness of access. We'll be dealing with these a little bit more uh, on Sabbath morning as well. I tell you the truth, my Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. Until now you have not asked for anything in my name. Ask and you will receive and your joy will be complete. This is a different word for asking. It's to request something. And the third component of lasting joy is that we can walk straight into the throne room of God in heaven and say, Dad, would you do this for me? And if it's good and right for us, our Father in heaven will do it. We come in and we say, because of Jesus, I'm your son, I'm your daughter. Will you do this for me? And the great God of the universe looks at us and says, yes, my child, I'll do what's best. And if he doesn't do it, we have kind of peace that it wouldn't have been for our best. The cross means that we have all the rights and privileges of the Son of God. God the Son walks into the Father's presence and says, Father, would you do this for me? And the Father responds to us exactly the same way he responds to his Son. The Son never asks for anything wrong because he's got perfect knowledge we don't have perfect knowledge so we sometimes ask amiss and our father loves us enough to always do what's best but he he answers us with the same readiness and love as he answers God the son we have fullness of access we don't need to go to saints we don't need to go to Mary We go straight to the Father. And we're used to it. Like we're used to the resurrection. But it's astonishing. It's incredible. So we have the joy of answered prayer. And we've experienced that in different ways. At different times. We've experienced it recently. um, In different ways at different times. (laughs) We experienced it last Wednesday morning as... as, uh, (laughs) As Karis said, you know, could we, you know, Roxy's visa hasn't arrived. We don't know if we'll be able to go on holidays with us. Uh, this was at the morning Bible today. Let's pray. Finished praying and Esna said, postman's coming to the door. 
the visa. Oh, incredible. Um, you know, there's a God who answers prayer. Um, and maybe part of the reason we lack joy at times is that we've lacked prayer. That's been a challenge that has come to us in our synod. We've been challenged over and over again to be in prayer. Um, James says, you do not have because you do not ask. Uh, and so uh, that we will have joy in prayer. Let's keep on asking. For this is a wonderful privilege that our father has op- or that our older brother has opened up for us. That we can come to the father uh, and find answer to prayer. In this broken world. Um, Do we reminded this evening. Do we need reminded that although we live in a damaged world. Grief doesn't have the final say. Sadness, disappointment, frustration doesn't have the last word. But the cross and the resurrection have spoken. And their ringing triumph echoes through our lives. So with you Jesus says. Now is your time of grief. But I will see you again. And you will rejoice and no one will take away your joy. And so as we prepare to come to the Lord's table, let's ask God to fill us with a fullness of joy that comes from the resurrection victory of Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, let's, let's pray. Father in heaven, what a joy you have given to us, and yet sometimes that joy lies buried under a layer of dust of familiarity. We know Jesus rose from the dead um, 2,000 years ago. But we forget that like the dam being burst by that first sort of crack and the, those first drops of water bursting through that dam wall, we are in that reservoir behind about to explode out unstoppably through death. Because resurrection life is ours through Jesus. We thank you not just for the future hope that gives us. But for the present help and purpose and encouragement. That all that Jesus did in his death and resurrection is ours already. And is, is shaping and colouring and flavouring everything about us. Let us dust off the resurrection. Let us dust off the wonder of the understanding that we have now of what Jesus has done, of what your plans are for our lives. Let us dust off the wonder of prayer and use these resurrection treasures to fuel our joy. Lord, as we come to the Lord's table, uh, refresh our joy, fill us with joy, not mere happiness, but way beyond that, a joy that can't be snatched from us, no matter what happens. Father, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.